and welcome. Uh, my name is Mike Gallet, and uh, thanks for tuning into my first podcast. I'm hoping uh, to do a series of podcasts, um, mostly talking about uh, the records that I made and some of my future uh, plans for recording. Um, if you didn't know, and I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't, uh, I'm a solo acoustic uh, guitarist. And uh, I have a couple of records out. Um, if you have any interest in getting a little more information on the stuff uh, that I'm going to uh, touch on on these podcasts, um, please feel free to visit MikeGolay.com. You can get more information on my music. Um, you can also buy it, uh, which would be uh, just super. Um, I do appreciate uh, any support I can get. Um, and, and thanks to everybody uh, uh, for supporting artists um, by by purchasing their art. That's uh, very kind of you and almost anachronistic in some cases, but uh, we do appreciate it. talk a little bit about the, sort of why I'm doing this. Um, one is I, I haven't been self-indulgent enough lately, um, and I just really, I feel like I need to just really uh, kind of just me out in, in a big way. So uh, no, I'm being somewhat disingenuous. Um, I, d I thought I would do this as an experiment um, to talk a little bit about um, what I've done um, from a recording standpoint to talk a little bit about the creative process, um, a little bit about recording. Um, and I think that might actually help me a little bit because I'm getting ready to, to record a third record. Um, and I've been kind of talking to myself about a lot of this stuff, so I thought maybe I'd just uh, sort of talk out loud. Um, and uh, so here we go. In the future, uh, I'll, I'll, I'm likely to talk about uh, other recordings that I've done, um, talk a little bit about playing solo guitar, um, playing live, um, re recording techniques uh, for those of you who are interested in those, and I'll probably talk a little bit about the music business uh, such that it is um, from an independent artist standpoint. Um, and when I say independent artist, I mean really independent. I mean very small operation and uh, trying to make a shake at it just like everybody else. I'm hoping, uh, you know, people, you know, different people will be interested in these um, podcasts for, for different reasons. Um, if you're if you're one of the, the lovely souls who, who listens to my music, who's, um, you know, maybe come to see my shows, uh, you know, hopefully you'll find this of interest. Um, you may have already heard some of these stories. Um, uh, gearheads, um, people who are interested in guitar um, techniques, uh, playing the guitar, um, people who are interested in, in doing their own recordings, I think, may find this of use. Um, and then finally, you know, just people with nothing better to do, um, you know, sort of like me. So in the first episode here, I'm going to talk about my first record, uh, which is called Half Pint. Um, I'm holding a copy of Half Pint in my hand at the moment. 
and uh, I haven't really looked at the album in a long time. At, at least I haven't critically looked at it. I recorded it in, in late 2002, and it came out in uh, 2003 on April Fool's Day, which I always thought was uh, kind of appropriate. get into talking about how I recorded the record and, and all that, it's probably try to give you a little bit of brief background on kind of my beginnings uh, on the guitar. Um, I started out playing uh, not guitar, but but playing drums uh, at a very young age. Um, I first started playing when I was around three, um, got, you know, sort of more serious and got a little bit more instruction uh, in grade school and high school, played all the way up through college. Um, was very much into, um, really into jazz, had a trio and played in a bunch of different bands, big bands, um, got into arranging um, for, for, mostly for small ensembles, um, both uh, for jazz ensemble and for percussion. Um, and it was just stuff I really, really enjoyed. Um, I took a break from music uh, for about a decade in the 90s, which um, all told was really, I think, a good thing for me having that time off um, from playing really kind of opened my ears up. When you get really uh, immersed in a certain style of music, you know, and in my case it was jazz, it, it becomes a real lifestyle. And I, th and I think that happens um, for a lot of musicians, uh, you know, whether it's um, jazz or, you know, classical also comes to mind. There's just so much to learn and so much to absorb um, that you kind of can't do it any other way other than to kind of just close yourself off to everything else, um, both musically and, you know, probably uh, socially. Uh, so, you know, it, it was good for me to take a break from that. Um, and when I came back to music in the late 90s, I listened to everything. And I didn't really play much. I, I wasn't playing drums. Um, I didn't really, I lost touch with the musicians I played with uh, before. One of the reasons this all happened was I moved uh, to New York City and uh, I moved into an apartment um, and I couldn't afford an apartment that was big enough for both me and my drums. So so that's kind of how that happened. You know, New City, didn't really know anyone, wasn't really playing. So I, I started listening to all kinds of different music and it was I remember, you know, now it's I, I look back at it as kind of funny, but at the time it, it was really liberating to me to listen to things like pop music, stuff that I had such disdain for, um, you know, a few years earlier, I realized why it's pop, um, because it's kind of fun to listen to. And, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, really... Uh, really lousy stuff, but I, you know, I, I grew up listening... Um, when I was much younger, to a lot of, um, in, in particular, British pop music, a lot of Elvis Costello, um, a lot of the stuff that was on MTV. You know, I was kind of like raised by MTV, and you know, a lot of people um, hated that era of music, the kind of like late '70s, early '80s. But man, I dug so much of it. I, you know, The Police, just all that stuff, um, The Clash, 
I realized how much a part of my musical DNA that stuff had become. It's funny, again, it's funny to think about it now, but it was really freeing to me to just sort of listen without conscience to anything. And I think after I'd done that for two or three years, I was ready to, to, to start playing again, but I wanted to play a different instrument. say I never played guitar up until that point. Um, my parents did buy me a guitar and I think it was about 1977. They bought me a, a, a cheap Korean, um, you know, flat top junior size um, guitar off, you know, the, the wall in a, in a record store back when they used to sell uh, guitars in record stores. Um, bless them. I, you know, I, I, I still have it somewhere. It's, um, I, I took a bunch of electrical tape and white out to it and made it into a Van Halen uh, kind of guitar. I really need to dig that out of my parents' attic and, and take a picture of it because it's pretty funny. That I did, especially the, the, f the funny thing to me is that I, I painted the top of this guitar white with white out. You know, with one of those little white out things and a little brush. I did an entire top of the guitar with one of those. Yeah. So um, where was I? So they got me that guitar, and but I never, I never really learned to play it. I I ran into trouble very early on. Um, I just couldn't get my left hand. I'm a right-handed player. I, I couldn't get my my left hand, my fretting hand, around any of the chords. Um, and I think this is, you know, years later I realized this is quite common. And for anybody out there who is just now picking up the guitar or or has been at it even for a year or two. And is finding, you know, still finding it pretty difficult. You're in good company. I just want you to know that guitar is, and I don't care what anybody says, guitar is a tough instrument. If you stick with it long enough, things will start to become natural, but it takes a while. So um, it's a wonderful instrument, uh, but it does require a lot of dedication. Eventually, you know, your hands and your mind will kind of become one, but it's, it does take a while and it can be a little painful. And, you know, just hang in there. Toward the end of the 90s, I started listening to a few um, solo guitar players, um, one of whom was Adrian Legg. And uh, Adrian is, is a British guitar guitarist um, who, to me, is, is a huge inspiration. The biggest impression that Adrian made on me, beyond his playing and his composition skills, I think is, is just in, in the way that he approaches music, which is to say that he really doesn't care what anybody thinks about his music. Um, there is a kind of, or can be a kind of attitude um, among uh, folkies, um, 
among the kind of acoustic scene of of you know playing guitar that says that you have to play a certain way um, on a certain guitar with a th- certain sound, and and that some of these points are valid. You know, some some of them are, are good guidelines um, in terms of getting you know good clean sounds and 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 all that. But it can get a little um, can get a little overbearing. Um, and Adrian's a guy who just d- doesn't care what anybody else thinks. He plays a, a kind of hybrid acoustic electric guitar. He uses a lot of effects. And he just doesn't care. His stuff is kind of beyond category. It's a mix of, you know, finger picking and Celtic music and rock and and just and sort of uh, some classical. It's he's just kind of I, th- I think he's a true original. And and early on, that was that made a big impression on me that a guy could sit down with a guitar by himself, write his own stuff, record it. And be cool with it. Um, and if people like it, that's great. And that's the end of the story. That was really inspiring to me. So a- Adrian was a big reason on why I, you know, got interested in guitar and wanted to try to figure the thing out. big influence uh, early on for me is a guy named Al Petaway. Probably a lot of guitar players out there listening to this um, know who Al is. Um, even if you don't uh, know who Al is, um, you've almost certainly heard his music if you've listened to NPR. Um, he and his wife, Amy White, have done a number of records together, um, and Al's been around for a long time, and he has a real signature sound um, that's just uh, it's unmistakable when you hear him. Um, just incredibly clear, beautiful tone. Um, and uh, he also happens to be one of the nicest guys in the world. I met Al when I lived in D.C., which is where I, I lived after I left New York. I think I met Al in a... Well, I actually heard he and, and his wife play at, a, at an outdoor festival. Um, I didn't know who he was or she was at the time, but um, a few years later when I decided that I, I wanted to take uh, some lessons someone uh on a on a message board recommended al um as a guy in my in my area he lived at at that time he and his wife lived in tacoma park uh, maryland so um he took me on as a student i studied very loosely with al um over the course of a year or so and we we just worked on really basic approaches to playing we talked uh quite a bit about composition but basically uh I would come over to his house, we'd sit in his studio, I would try to play stuff for him very poorly, I might add. He would play it back like an absolute angel. I would pay him and go home and cry. That was the arrangement, that was the relationship. You know, little did I know how big of an effect I was going to have on my development as a musician and on my music later on. I'll get into talking about Al a little more um, on the next podcast that I do. Um, when I talk about my my second record. Uh, But the first record, Half Pint, I had been playing guitar uh, and composing um, my own tunes for about two years um, when I decided to do a record, Um, which, you know, I realize now was um, 
incredibly ambitious and probably pretty foolhardy, um, but baby, I'm a fool. I think what really drove me to do the record more than anything was that I needed focus. I needed focus on my playing. Um, I kind of felt like I was all over the map. I was listening to a lot of different players. I was trying to play in a bunch of different styles. I had tried mostly unsuccessfully to learn how to play a number of other um, artists' pieces. And, and that kind of wasn't coming together for me like I wanted it to. I realize now, you know, with a little hindsight, that that was just a part of developing and, um, you know, playing guitar is hard. At the, at the time, you know, I had been a musician uh, for, for a couple of decades, and I, and I guess I, I, I kind of thought that, you know, I should be progressing a little faster. Um, you know, it just turns out, hey, guitar is kind of hard. So, uh, you know, get in line like everybody else and, and pay your dues. So, but what it did lead me to, uh, to do, you know, I'll mention Al one more time. Al really did encourage me to write my own stuff. I had been writing some of my own stuff prior to meeting Al. And I played a few of those pieces for Al. And, you know, he was, he was fairly kind and, and really did encourage me to keep up the composition um, and I do remember early on, he's, you know, I think maybe his first comment to me was, um, you know, it's great that you that you've been working on so many originals. You know, that's not terribly common. You know, most people, when they pick up an instrument, they want to, you know, learn a bunch of tunes, um, learn a bunch of covers or learn how to play this song and that song, um, which is a great way to learn the instrument. I don't mean to poo poo that at all. I just kind of wasn't interested in playing other other tunes. I wanted to write my own stuff, and, and he encouraged me to do that. So my main interest in doing the record was really just, it was kind of an exercise in focus. I wanted to write a pile of tunes uh, and record a pile of tunes. And at the time, I wasn't even thinking about releasing the material. Um, I just wanted to see if I could do it. So I ended up doing the record in, in w what became two sessions. I, initially, I had hoped to do it in one session in a little less than a week. The first session that I did, um, I did in a studio apartment in Baltimore. It was actually a, a fairly small room. I think it was probably 12 by 15 or something like that. Very live room, wood floors. It really sounded nice in there. Being a complete neophyte when it came to recording something I wasn't prepared for at all and uh, you know I think this is a cautionary tale for anybody who wants to record their own stuff um, and everybody's doing that nowadays the biggest problem that I had to deal with in recording was not not playing my own stuff but external noise I just had no clue how incredibly sensitive those mics were going to be. The studio apartment was in a fairly urban area in downtown Baltimore. 
those mics picked up trucks rumbling. They picked up the neighbors next door. They picked up the water heater, which sounded like a tin cup full of uh, nuts and bolts being shaken violently. It was really noisy. It almost undid me. You know, I would listen back, doing the best takes I could possibly do under the circumstances, and they were just inundated with noise. And I and I just didn't I didn't know what to do about that at the time. Um, and now I I know there are, you know a few different strategies to deal with it. But at the time I really didn't know what to do. Um, I ended up recording the record at a much lower level um, in terms of gain. And then you know later in the mixing process, which I'll talk about a little bit um, in a few minutes, you know we we, we bumped the gain up quite a bit. Uh, turning the gain down and uh, turning the level down in recording was just an, an attempt to pick up less background noise. Um, but, you know, it also obviously made for uh, less of a signal. So, you know, that's all stuff that, that, you know, it was a big learning experience for me. I, I also, I think another thing was I wasn't prepared for the physicality of the recording process. That is to say that having never done it before, it turned out to be much more physically demanding than I thought it would be. Sitting on a stool, playing, you know, 10, 12 tunes over and over and over, eight hours a day for a week is a very, very fatiguing process, to say the least. At the time, I had a really raging case of tendonitis, which was basically just overplaying. And the only thing you can do um, when you get when you get a case of it that bad is you just have to stop playing. Um, but that wasn't really an option for me that week. So um, I was dangerously overdosing on aspirin and and uh, drinking tons of coffee, which is also probably exacerbated the, the tendonitis, as caffeine tends to do. It, it was it was tough. Uh, I, I did my absolute best to, to get good takes. Um, but the noise inside the apartment building, the neighbors, it was really tough. I also had, if, if all that wasn't bad enough, I was having some problems with my guitar. I didn't know much about keeping, you know, fine instruments uh, humidified at the time or anything like that. And um, my guitar had gotten very dry. And so the, the action had lowered to, to the point where I, I really couldn't fret anything without getting, you know, a metallic buzz and... You know, I just I didn't know what was going on with the guitar at the time because I was I was too dumb to know um, what the deal was. So I mention all that to say that um, when I was finally done um, with what had become the first session, I, d I didn't realize at the time it was there was going to be a second session. But the sound that I had, while I had a few good performances, the the sound on a lot of the tunes was just kind of unusable. The the guitar was not sounding that great. Uh, the noise in some cases was just too much. And, um, you know, I just, I, I wasn't satisfied. So I took about a week off and I actually, I did do, I say two sessions now. I actually did 2.1 sessions. I, I did the first session um, from which I got, I think six tunes that I ended up using. I recorded one tune at home in my apartment and in the course of, of recording that, I was actually just, I, I had thought about doing the second session back at my apartment because I, moving all my recording stuff around, I had done that in the first place because I, I just, I needed a space to work where I was basically unable to be contacted um, and away from daily life. 
But having said that, you know, moving all that gear into a place was kind of not what I wanted to do again. So I, I did make a rough attempt at doing a second session in my in my apartment, which was I, I tried it in my living room. It was an incredibly dead, dead living room in terms of acoustics, which I realize now is, is not the worst thing. You can deal with that. But at the time, you know, having just come off uh, doing a session in a really live room and really liking that sound, I was really after a, a, a more live sound. So I ended up using an amplifier in the first session, I used uh, two different mics. I used a small and a large diaphragm condenser in space pair configuration, if anybody out there knows what that is. It's basically, you have two mics. I had one kind of on the end of the guitar, which near the bridge, and then I had um, another mic um, sort of on the f pointed kind of at the fretboard around the, around the 12th fret. They probably weren't the best mics. Well, I know they weren't the best mics, but... Um, the choice of a small diaphragm and a large diaphragm um, working together was probably not the best choice, but that, those were the mics that I had at the time, so that's what I used. I also used a little bit of pickup, which now I wouldn't do, but at the time I, I was using a, a kind of smaller bodied um, guitar, a grand concert size, and I really, f I, I did like the sound that I got with a little bit of pickup um, mixed in. Um, it gave it a kind of a fuller bottom end. I realize now that I could have mic'd a little differently and maybe used a little sparing EQ in the mix process to kind of make up for that and have less of a kind of synthetic sound from the pickup. Um, but at the time, you know, I just, that was like, you know, more info than my head could hold. So back at the apartment session, um, which I did after the first apartment session, uh, back in the dead room, I had actually gotten two large diaphragm mics this time around. Um, I was using one of the same ones and then I got an, another large diaphragm. And the, the new large diaphragm that I got had a, a setting for Omni. There's a cardioid setting, which is um, where you can make a mic basically pick up only what's directly in front of it, um, being directed into the capsule. And then Omni is where a mic will record in 360 degrees, basically. So I set one of the mics on three on, on Omni, so it was picking up everything in the room, and then I ran out from a pickup to a small amp and used a little bit of reverb on the amp, and actually liked the recorded sound quite a bit, at least initially. And actually that track on the record is the next to the last track. Yeah, it's it's the second take that I did of St. Martin's, um, St. Martin's Lowdown, which is actually tuned all the way down to B flat on a little, uh, tiny little grand concert guitar. But that experiment made me think, hey, you know, maybe that's a way of kind of livening up a room using a little amp. So I got that. I didn't actually plan on using that take, but I, di I did end up using it because I, th I thought it came off kind of nicely. But I took about another week off and went into 
uh, kind of, you know, edit hibernation and really, really realized that, yeah, I needed a, a, I needed a second session on this. So um, I talked to a good friend of mine, uh, Brian Connors. If you've dug around on my, on my site enough at mightgolay.com and looked at any of the climbing uh, stuff, which was something I, I, was, I was very into uh, back around this time, the, the time of, of recording the, the first record, and I still do a little bit of. Hopefully I'll do more uh, going forward into my life. He's, uh, he's been my main climbing partner over the years, and uh, he and his wife Jennifer um, offered uh, their house up to me uh, to record there um, while they were on vacation. In their house, they had a, a pretty large uh, living room uh, with a wood floor um, that was closer to to the sound of of the first room that I had used. Uh, so I thought it was it was a good match. What what I realized in coming into that room though is that it was quite a bit larger, and and the shape of the room was quite a bit different. For whatever reason, I thought it would be. I thought using the amp in this room, using that same um, omni miking technique would be a good idea. So that's what I did um, for the second session. I learned a few things about my position from doing the first session. So I think this, you know, the second session did actually go quite a bit better. Um, it was still a very physical process. It got me the other half of the tunes for the record. So from that point, uh, I did a little bit of editing. When I record, I, I really do try to do my absolute best to get live takes. Having said that, you know, Everybody makes mistakes. My method of, of kind of fixing those is to kind of keep a, I don't know how else to, to describe it, but sort of keep a, a running kind of TiVo or DVR in my head of what I've played. If I make a mistake um, in the course of playing something, I'll kind of mentally keep track of that. Then I'll rewind past that mistake, maybe a measure past the mistake, and I'll just play back from there over the, over the mistake again, hopefully not making the same mistake, and then kind of keep going. And then after I do all of that, because I'm recording everything digitally, I can go back and, and digitally kind of edit out the mistake, if that makes sense. Um, I really do try to keep that to a minimum. I find, at least in my own recording, that if I'm doing more than, say, three takes on something, that it's just really not coming together and I need to work on something else. Um, the best ones are usually the first or the second. You know, it's just a ma really a matter of kind of having it together before recording and then, uh, you know, just trying to listen really critically as you're playing. After about a day of recording, I get that, I get kind of in a zone where um, I have that, that mental recorder kind of working and I can kind of scan back and forth um, and record kind of more effectively. The first day is always tough, and I usually end up throwing out everything that I do the first day just because I'm not, just not in a recording mindset yet. You know, it just takes doing it. it just takes uh, spending some time in front of the mics. So it took about a week to kind of do final edits, and then I enlisted the help of a guy named Scott Spellbring, who um, is a is a producer and, and recordist who has a studio out in the Shenandoah. Um, he's worked with a bunch of big rock acts and, and uh, he's a drummer himself and I knew him socially so it seemed to be a good fit and he said he'd do it. So I worked with, with Scott on the mix uh, process which involved a little bit more editing. Um, he's a very gifted guy in terms of, of editing so he helped me out with a few things 
help me with EQ, uh, which we did pretty sparingly, I think. Um, and then he, he ended up helping out with reverb, um, which was basically the only effect that we used. And, ju- and just, you know, basically getting, getting the, the recordings ready. Something that I, that I did learn in the course of doing the record that kind of came to bear in, in the mix process was the amount of reverb that I used in recording the tracks really did kind of interfere with the mix stage. And by that, I mean, if you already have reverb on a track and you add more reverb on top of that, it can get really muddy. Um, You know, you can think about, it's just, you know, kind of two cycles of reverb. And I can actually really hear that on the record. And I vacillate between thinking it sounds kind of cool sometimes and thinking I made a major mistake. Having done it that way, I'll, I'll I'll likely never do that again. I'll probably never record with effects again, um, just because you can do a much better job um, adding reverb or any other effects for that matter um, later in the mix process. And if you're working with someone else um, in the mix process, which I really recommend that you do, I think it's really difficult to have, you know, to have fresh ears on your own stuff. It's just, I think it's really hard to be objective. There's almost some always somebody um, in a studio with more talent <laughs> than me um, at at doing the mixing. So I really prefer to leave that to to better hands. Um, and I was really fortunate to work with Scott. He really knew what he was doing. One thing that we didn't do with the record that I just you know I frankly at the time I I didn't really understand the process. I still sort of don't. And I and I you know I was on a I was on a fixed budget and I and I just you know I didn't feel like spending more money basically but I didn't have the record properly mastered. I did work with Scott to even out the volume of the tracks, all the tracks, which is one of the things that you do in the mastering process. The first tune is roughly as loud as the second tune is roughly as loud as the third tune, so um, you don't have to run back to your stereo and turn it up and down and up and down. So um, we, we did do that, but, but that's really not all there is to mastering. Um, mastering is a real black art. You, you can do all kinds of really cool stuff in the mastering phase from um, denoising, which is you know, basically taking out a lot of background noise, messing with some of the, some of the annoying frequencies that might still be there, and, and, you know, and, and leveling all the tracks out. It's guys who really know what they're doing in the, in the mastering process are, are just absolute gold. You can, you can really improve the sound of a recording. And I, and I think it's best to, to get the mastering done. Having, having had my second record properly mastered, um, I think it's best to have a separate mastering house um, to, to do the mastering um, for various reasons. I just think, you know, it's, a, it's fresh ears, a different, probably a different listening environment. That's kind of the recording and the mixing and, and the mastering of the thing. I thought I'd kind of touch on a few of the tunes um, and, and kind of, you know, talk a little bit about the composing, um, maybe talk a little bit about the stories behind, behind some of the music. The first track is called Beverly Jane. Um, that's a tune that I wrote for my mom. Um, that's her name. Th- this was really a, a very frank uh, attempt uh, at sounding like um, a really, really great uh, guitarist who's been a big influence on me um, named Don Ross. And, and I failed to sound like Don, uh, but I still want to be Don when I grow up. It's, uh, it's, it's a fairly percussive uh, piece. 
Um, I saw Don on an NPR video playing a tune of his called This Dragon Won't Sleep, and he was using uh, his left hand to slap the fretboard, and he was setting up a backbeat that way. And I just thought it was a really cool technique I'd never seen at the time. I'd never seen anybody do that before. And I thought, well, you know, there's something I'm going to steal. And I kind of wrote a tune around it. It's one of those tunes, I still play it live. I like the tune. Uh, it has a lot of different parts going on, which I think is, at least on the first record, I have a number of tunes that have a, a, a several different distinct parts. And I like linking these sort of different distinct parts uh, all together in a piece. It's it's a challenge to me, and I like doing it. The middle section is kind of a kind of a breakdown section, and... and uh, my mother grew up in the 50s, and uh, I, when I'm playing this, the middle section, um, which just involves a lot of slapping and kind of some muting and, and stuff, um, I always kind of think of her like in a, in a convertible, some big Cadillac convertible with her friends, you know, driving at a, at a high speed down a main street in a small town, you know, with, uh, with an officer, you know, a good... 100 feet back trying to keep up, but uh, just not quite, you know. Not that my mother was ever a fugitive from justice or anything like that, but... Uh, it's just a mental image that I have in mind when I, when I play it. So um, that one was a lot of fun. And, and at the time, it was it was far and away the most difficult um, tune for me to play, to tune for me to record, um, and, and for me to play. I did, I can't tell you how many takes on it. Um, it's funny, you know, now I can reel that tune off quite easily, but um, at the time it was a real bear. And uh, I was I was really um, was really determined to get a good take of it. Drive-In Saturday Night is uh, is the fourth track on the record. This was one one of the tunes that, I, you know, the, kind of the backstory is 
uh, I don't do beaches very well. I never really have, but um, you know, I, I get dragged to them. I'm, I'm getting better at it now that I live in Maine, but uh, for a long time, I wasn't very good at it. Uh, I just, I get out there, I get bored very quickly. I, it's hot. Um, I don't like going in the water. I'd rather be elsewhere. Uh, but I used to go down to this beach uh, on the Chesapeake Bay called Chincoteague. And um, on the way in to Chincoteague is, um, and I, I assume it's still there. Maybe somebody will, will, will email me and tell me if, if they've been there or, or what the area looks like now. But um, uh, there's this roller rink off to the right as you drive in. It's, it's done in this kind of 50 style and it's um, painted pale yellow and it's called The Dream. And behind The Dream is the Dream Drive-In, which has been out of, I, I think, at least at the time when I was there, um, it was out of commission, but they still kind of kept it up. And and um, I grew up with drive-ins. Um, I think they're really cool. While I was there, uh, one weekend, th this tune came to me, um, kind of actually while sitting out on the beach and wanting to leave, came to me just sort of fully realized I, I had the whole tune in my head. Um, but it took me a little while to get it all to come out on the on the guitar. Um, it it's sort of it, it started as an attempt to just kind of do a fiddle tune, um, but it kind of became sort of more like a banjo tune, and it has a little bit of frailing, what's what's called frailing, which is where you play with the backs of your of your nails. My frailing technique is not authentic. Um, there are people who take that whole style very, 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 very seriously. Um, the whole kind of claw hammer banjo technique as applied to the guitar. Um, I'm just banging around. Um, but that uh, that tune's actually um, kind of taken on a life of its own. It's I, I get a lot of requests for it. it. It's gotten a lot of radio play. It's, it's probably the tune on the record that's gotten the most mileage. Um, and uh, I, li I still like to play it quite a bit. Uh, St. Martin's is the fifth tune uh, on the record. And um, this is a, a, a really important tune to me. Um, when I lived in New York, uh, I had, uh, you know, like anybody in their, in their early to mid-20s, had their share of drama going on in my personal life. And um, I, used to, uh, I used to live up uh, by the Cathedral of St. John the Divine uh, near Columbia uh, University. Um, St. John's is on 113th Street. Um, which is where I lived, um, over toward Riverside. And inside the chapel, or I'm sorry, inside the, the cathedral are uh, seven chapels. And I'm not, I, you know, I should say I'm, I'm not a religious person, um, but uh, I used to go in, into St. John's, which is just incredibly beautiful and incredibly dark. It's this huge mix of different styles, Gothic and Renaissance, and it's just all, it's got so much going on. Um, but it's not scrubbed clean like a, like a St. Pat's or, 
or like anywhere else. It's um, it's a dark place, but there's still a lot of light coming from it. You you just have to you have to visit it to to know what I'm talking about. Um, they it's a it's a big center for arts. They have um, a lot of artwork hanging there, um, and in the back of of uh, Saint John's are these seven different chapels, and they're all named after after different saints. And the one that I uh, always liked was was one called Saint Martin's, and I used to go in there and and spend an awful I spent an inordinate amount of time in there, especially for heathen. Um, sort of, you know, staring at my navel and just kind of, you know, thinking through life. And uh, I wanted to do a tune to, to just kind of celebrate the place. And, uh, and this is it. It was, at the time, it, it was another one of the tunes on the record that was a real challenge for me to get under my fingers. Um, I think, actually, the take that I got was about as fast as I've ever played it. And I did get that entire um, tune in one take. There's no edit there except for the very end, the last uh, chord that I play. After I played it, it was dying off. And as I mentioned, it was a very noisy neighborhood and someone laid on a horn for about half a minute. It was, I was not amused, Uh, but I I sort of kept it together enough to to play the, you know, rewound in my head a little bit, played the ending again after the guy had laid off the horn and, uh, you know, played the chord again and then and fixed it with an edit. Um, but it, it, you know, it was, it was kind of a downer. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I managed to manage to get that take and I'm, and I'm really glad I did. Jerry Said is the seventh tune on the record. Um, this is a tune I did for my dad. Um, and, and you know, it, of course, you know, you, you, do, you do a tune for your mom. You have to do a tune for your dad. Um, I played the, this tune on a dobro, which um, is a, typically a, a, a guitar that you play in your lap. It has a square neck, and you play it with, a, with this metal bar, and it's typically played in a blue, bluegrass context. You know, I, I'm not a bluegrass player by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know any bluegrass tunes. Um, and I just kind of approached the dobro like I approached the guitar, just kind of um, organically. And this was a tune that came out. Um, it is the tune that I know that I wrote on a dobro. Um, it's pretty much the only tune that I know on a dobro still. But tends to go over really well um, with audiences. They like to, they like to hear that slide. And um, it, I did it uh, also, you know, I did it for my dad, but it's also a little bit of a tribute to, um, you know, to my ears and to a lot of people's ears, the, the best Obra player on the planet, um, Jerry Douglas. I heard the, the opening part, the, the intro, 
um, is kind of based on a, a loosely based on a lick that I heard Jerry play on one of his videos, um, and I kind of just sort of developed it from there. So a um, little bit for Dad, a little bit for uh, for the other Jerry. Record. 111 Archer Avenue is the fictional address of the Tannenbaums. Um, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, that's cool. Um, I'm a big Wes Anderson film fan. He's a director who did um, Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, Royal Tannenbaums, Life Aquatic. In, in the Royal Tannenbaums, they live in a house, and the name of my tune is the, the address of the house. Because I'm a geek, that's why. Um, I was listening to to uh, the DVD with the commentary on for the twelfth time. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of sad, isn't it? Um, of the Royal Tenenbaums, and was kind of picking along and, and playing, and this tune kind of developed. It it's it's to me it's kind of, it's a pretty odd tune on the record. It's it was kind of the odd man out. It's also easily the noisiest tune. I want to say I recorded this first or second in the session in terms of, you know, the, the order in which I recorded. The water heater was really acting up. I was swallowing and fidgeting and tendons were popping and um, all this stuff like right into the mic. Um, it's, it's really very noisy. a certain quality to to the tune that I liked so I kept it and oddly enough I play this tune quite a bit live now it's become uh, paired with another tune that I, that I recorded on my on my second record um, it's be kind of become my opener it's one that I can I can take very slowly and, and kind of work into um, and then work into a kind of a faster groovier piece I recorded it for the guitar geeks out there I recorded it in drop D um, which is really about as close as I get to standard tuning um, on any sort of normal basis. I, I never really learned to play in standard tuning. I play in bunches and bunches of different tunings. Um, but uh, drop D is, is standard tuning with, with the low E down to a D. And I, I recorded it uh, with a capo at the fifth fret. Interestingly, or, or not enough now, um, I play this tune either on my regular guitar, uh, capo at the second fret, or I played on my baritone guitar, um, tuned all the way down to A. So it's, you know, in terms of the register, it's much, much lower when I play it live now. And I, you know, while I liked it recorded up high, um, playing it down low gives it a, a whole new quality. And um, I, I, like, I like hearing it a, a little bit lower now. Mm -hmm. 
Baby with a Hammer is uh, track nine on the record. I started writing that tune after I saw a Leo Kotke uh, concert uh, in Maryland, um, which is probably, you know, if you know Leo's music, it's probably fairly obvious um, that I was, I was trying to be a little bit like Leo um, in, in, in composing this thing. But kind of where the name comes from is uh, I was working on this tune and I, I pretty much had the bones of it down and I got a, an email from a friend of mine, Chip Chennery, um, telling me that uh, he and his wife Mary had had, had a baby and uh, the baby's name uh, for the record is Owen Finn Chinnery, which is a great name. And I just thought, you know, at the time, I, you know, you kind of have to know Chip to get this, but I just knew this kid was going to be trouble uh, more than anything. So, uh, so baby with a hammer uh, w was the phrase that came to mind just immediately. Um, and I dedicated this tune to, to Chip and Mary and Owen Finn. It's a, it's a lot of fun to play. If I'm feeling uh, particularly bombastic at the end of a show, I'll, I'll I usually end with this one. Um, it's a crap pleaser. It's and you know it's it, it's a it's a fun tune. So I walked you through a good deal of the record, a few tunes I didn't talk about, um, but uh, that's that's for another time. Uh, if you'd like to hear them, if you'd like to purchase the record, um, you're more than welcome to visit MikeGolay.com. Um, there are links on there to take you right through and, and, and purchase the record. Um, my stuff is also available from uh, a bunch of different digital distribution outlets, um, including iTunes. Um, so uh, be sure to check those out if for the the downloading amongst you. Thanks very much for tuning in. I hope to do another one of these soon. Uh, the next record that I'll talk about um, is my second record called Across the Bridge. I did that uh, in uh, 2005. It came out in November of 2005. Very special body of work for me for all kinds of different reasons um, that I'll, I'll talk about next time. So uh, thanks again. Uh, again, you're, you're welcome to visit michaelay.com. Uh, write me email. That's I love to hear from folks. And uh, talk to you again soon. Hope to see you out there. Thanks. Thanks.